0: Today we're going to be talking about Breaking Glass from 1980, directed by Brian Gibson and starring Hazel O'Connor. It's the story of a young singer and her rise to fame and subsequent fall.
1: And how far she falls depends on which version of the film you watch, because there's slightly different versions for the UK and the US.
0: Yeah, I saw a couple of years ago that Hazel O'Connor was touring with an uncut version, which I'm guessing is the, the UK version. Yeah. And apparently she was doing a screening of the film and then a performance of some of the songs and then a Q&A session afterwards.
1: That's a very, very niche audience <laughs> yeah, yeah, she was yeah. pursuing there, but good on her.
0: Yeah, I kind of feel bad that I missed it now, having reviewed the film. I feel like that might have been quite a nice,
1: <laughs> nice evening out. Yeah, the um, there's a full-length version is is about on DVD and then for America, there's a few scenes were trimmed. And by the end of the film, spoiler alert, the lead characters undergone a complete mental breakdown famous grounder down but that's that's very much reduced in the US version they yeah they removed removed scenes of, of mental breakdown and removed basically the entire ending of the film so it seems to end on a bit of a high
0: it's a bit of a kind of fake high as well isn't it because yeah it's just had like steroid injection in the ass
1: or whatever it is to kind of get her onto stage so let's backtrack yeah so written and directed by brian gibson i didn't know he wrote it until watching it this time around
0: yeah yeah, but apparently he had a script that was sort of written by the guy that wrote rock follies and He ditched that once Hazel O'Connor signed on and a lot of it's anecdotal from her kind of experiences on the music scene.
1: And Brian Gibson came from a um, I think primarily like a BBC drama type background, although I get the feeling it's difficult to find details on somebody who's not kind of a famous director. Yeah, not Ridley Scott basically Yeah but um, I get the feeling that he did a lot of good BBC drama. I think he did a, a Dennis Potter play. But I get the sense as well that he did commercials and music videos yeah. too. Because there's a big gap in his filmography on IMDb. I think between this and his next feature in the sort of mid to late '80s, where the only listings are like four music videos by sticks. Sticks, yeah. yeah I saw <laughs> so it. I think he was probably so doing he's probably so he's probably gone though. to the
0: states, hasn't he? And is like just doing back to back videos. Yeah, and the fact that there's a video that features really prominently in the uh, in the film you know considering it's only 1980 it's probably an indication
1: that he knew the landscape yeah he's kind of clearly like reaching into different markets and he's mm-hmm. i think he was probably supporting himself quite well during that period
0: like for me i feel like not that this film's always been around but i definitely remember the music when i was a kid it's 1980 i'd have been seven years old i remember the songs being in the charts and Having rewatched the film, I was surprised at how many of the songs I knew yeah. and knew quite a lot of lyrics from you know sort of childish misun mishearings of lyrics, but still pretty close mm. um but I don't feel like I've seen the film that many times. I definitely had it taped off the t v on you know videotape twenty two or something having seen it again, there's scenes in it that I remembered from being a kid that were really. Upsetting the scene with the the guy that gets stabbed at the at the uh, the kind of mini riot that happens in the middle. I remember being really like scared by that.
1: Yeah, I I have exactly the same thing. I remember the songs being in the charts. Like I was nine years old. I think the next door neighbors, the teenage girls who lived there, they had like the soundtrack album. I think I can't remember when I first saw it. I don't. Mm -hmm. I think I probably just caught like a chunk of it late on TV. It's not one of those films that you would actively seek out i've got a strange fascination with brian gibson because he made poltergeist 2 which i think he's oh, yeah. got two really good bits in and yeah. i think he had like an interesting you know non-auteur career
0: yeah so he went on to do what's love got to do with it
1: yeah and then the one that surprised me which i didn't know he made um was oh was it what was it, was it called still crazy Oh, yeah, the, the, British, kind the of British kind of
0: rock, band, rock reunion. band
1: reunion thing from about 2000, which mm. was quite a big hit. Mm. And that was a big, like, Bill Nighy moment as well, yeah, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think that was his last film. He died in 2004. But, yeah, I was, I was you know, surprised how many of his films I knew. Yeah, sure.
0: It's one of those films, I think, that kind of felt like it was big at the time. You know, it, it felt like they pushed Hazel O'Connor as a star. They pushed the film out. And then it just kind of stopped yeah you know not existing but certainly being referred to it doesn't feel like well it's, it's, it's hard to find mention of it in like film text about the rich film industry it's kind of it's sort of a, a footnote
1: yeah well i think unless films make it big in america you know films that just kind of paddle along and, and make their money back just disappear from i mean we don't really revere our filmmakers unless they are you know auteurs or they're big in America, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of success lot... in
0: America still counts, doesn't it? But yeah. you know, he had that as a filmmaker, but yeah, like saying sort of non auteur, yeah.
1: And a lot of you know, small British films just disappear
0: forever. Mm. Um, I find it's... that really frustrating with this film, especially because it's actually like really good. It is a good film, mm. she's really good in it. It has a few clunky moments, but you know, nothing that's unforgivable
1: part of the reason it's been forgotten I think is because it's it's very much it is of its time mm. and the music it covers the music scene and it's already slightly out of date by the time it came out it's a little bit anachronistic and then obviously after 1980 everything moved so quickly yeah, that it sure. was ju- it's just not relevant it's at left all behind and, yeah, yeah absolutely left behind so yeah I think fashion just relegated it to the, to the dustbin for a long while now we were talking about this before and you're saying it was you know it's only sort of now almost 40 years later, that you can look at look at it sort of outside of fashion and it's like a yeah that's it it's a proper time capsule now isn't mm, it Mm. and it's a period film rather than a dated (laughs) film yeah exactly so probably the best way to start talking about breaking glass is to um think about when it was made and what it relates to in terms of what was going on musically i think i think one of the problems with it and the reason that it was kind of Disdained at the time is that the film doesn't really have a very coherent attitude towards the music industry. I don't think it really understands it, or understands it's the character of Kate and her place in it, or her place in the music scene. It is supposed to be a film set set in the music industry and about the music industry, and it doesn't really kind of do the details that well. It's you know there's no. Punk was the main motivating force behind everything that's going on in this film. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's the foundation,
1: isn't it? It's the foundation, and it's kind of ignored
0: and ridiculed. So you think they were sort of moving their chips onto like the new wave bets and hoping that that would be enough to carry it?
1: Yeah, I think new wave was a, you know is is a vast sort of open field where anyone could do anything, and, mm. and her music fits more into that. Uh, The music's kind of, it's all written by Hazel O'Connor, but it's all produced and very much produced by Tony Visconti. Yeah, it's got quite a rich sound, hasn't it? Because of how raw it's supposed to be. You know, it's got, so, and and Hazel O'Connor's character, Kate, says early on that her music's not punk and it's not new wave, it's Mm. just different. And the film never quite categorises her music. Um, But for me, it's it kind of like feeds into, especially with Tony Visconti involved, it kind of feeds into 70s art rock. Mm -hmm. um, And it's more polished, you know her songs are quite stroppy and confrontational but musically they're very polished and they yeah, have quite quite pleasing chord changes yeah they in stick in your head don't they and yeah you know hazel o'connor's kind of always got the white white face makeup on yeah sure um and she kind of does a lot of dance gestures and mime and this is all mm. kind of kind of stage school art rock yeah lineage type thing Yeah, it, go,
0: it sort of goes into the kind of robotics and the metropolis <laughs> and all of that those yeah. kind of references too does not it
1: and her ideas are all quite progressive and musical mm. um and and this is kind of one of the failings of the film in a way, in that the music is too polished from the start. Do you think that's why it hasn't had the sort of longevity? Yeah. The, the music sort. Of... Yeah, I th- I don't I I don't think it was taken particularly seriously musically at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is the there is the temptation to kind of classify Hazel O'Connor as like a stage school punk like Toya. Um, I find it difficult to say a hard word about Toya because she's such a lovely person. Yeah, sure. But she, she was, was second in line
0: for this as well, wasn't yeah, she?
1: Yeah, but um, you know, that's not quite authentic. It's not really from the streets. It's mm. from. It's from. Mm.
0: But, you know, you could say that about pretty much all music, <laughs> pop music at the moment, regardless of genre. Whether yeah, it's yeah. like hip hop or no, absolutely rock and roll. It's all now very middle class, but, isn't
1: it? Yeah, but the myth, the myth mm. has always been, and the myth of punk is that it's from the streets or from the suburbs, and it's you know, mm. it's very authentic and and. Yeah, not produced but I not think not sometimes getting
0: the message out is more important than the person saying it you know wasn't it Karl Marx who said that revolution has to be led by the middle classes because the working class are all at work <laughs> <laughs> so that that for me is a failing of the film and it, it you're saying the music is a failing of the film I actually really like the music and I think it is maybe the distance that helps with that you know the fact that it's been so long since it was released and it actually sounds fresh and the production holds together nicely.
1: I like the music a lot. Mm-hmm. I like the tunes a lot. Um, and I was, I really, really like, and we we'll talk about it later, but the scene with Who Needs It? I think oh, yeah. it's brilliant. It's oh, yeah, yeah, a really, yeah.
0: really good song. Yeah, yeah. So I really like that scene on the train right at the beginning where she's putting up stickers for her gig and then she moves from carriage to carriage. And there's a sequence where she just looks straight into the camera and lip syncs to the song that we can hear on the soundtrack.
1: Yeah, there's, there's a lot is made of telling the film from her point of view and mm. it being her experiences.
0: There's a really nice bit at the end of that opening sequence where she sort of walks to the back of the train. There's like a uh, Lady Gaga moment where she's like, la da 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 da. And the train just keeps going into the distance and the camera seems to just stay where it is, but you can't see any tunnel or anything else. Yeah. And the train seems to disappear
1: we we sat and watched that and it took me a little while i think i've worked out how they how they did that i don't think you'd be able to do it these days but they must have got a tube into a, a depot or a station yeah yeah a studio or something yeah because there's lots of really nice tracking shots along mm. the outside on the, the outside tube, yeah, whilst yeah. it's in motion yeah, yeah um through the windows and then to be able to do that in the tunnel they must have moved the cameras into a depot and got you know, an yeah shoot
0: they do that thing where she's walking through the train and it sort of cuts in closer as she moves from compartment to compartment but yeah. it also feels like it's the same carriages repeated you know it's that sort of little uh, visual trick
1: But well, it's nice to see it was a Piccadilly line train heading in my direction
0: yeah yeah that's it well the film's set around Finsbury Park isn't it so... uh,
1: no a lot of it's in West London
0: uh, what? yeah
1: yeah oh, where thought... she lives yeah she lives in West London but all the gigs are up and near the rainbow and, yeah um...
0: that's it it's bookended by two gigs at the rainbow isn't it
1: yeah and apparently there's I... obviously if I was a punk aficionado I'd have recognised it immediately there's some stuff in the Hope and Anchor in um, Angel. Oh, yeah, okay. A legendary punk pub. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, a lot of the gigs take place in North London, but there's loads of um, spectacular crane shots which show you the flyover, mm-hmm. and then Tavistock Hotel oh, yeah, in the back. Right, yeah, oh, right, yeah, that's right. West London.
0: Yeah, 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 that's true. I was surprised when you see a lot of the landscape shots, the wide kind of vistas of London, that one of the only towers you can see is the BT Tower. Yeah. How prominent and isolated it looks compared yeah, to now compared though. to now yeah. it's
1: changed so much in the last 20 years
0: mm. the next sequence we're introduced to the Rainbow legendary London music venue it was built in 1930 and was one of the largest cinemas in the world at the time and then in 1971 it was converted to a music venue full time but before then there'd been a couple of one-off gigs including the gig where Hendrix set his guitar on fire and mm-hmm. um, the Who's "Long Live Rock" song is about the Rainbow Theatre, right. and Zappa. Frank Zappa was hospitalized for six weeks after being pushed off the stage by a fan at the Rainbow <laughs> Theatre. Um, other gigs there: Ziggy Stardust, Derek Clapton, Pink Floyd, James Brown, Stevie Wonder, Queen, T. Rex, Bob Marley, The Ramones, Thin Lizzy,
1: Monty Python,
0: Monty Python, Iron Maiden, and then uh, it just kind of just closed and was closed and empty for. A decade and a half and is now a pentecostal church
1: right no it's really frustrating because it's apparently a really good venue and i've never been to it but you keep reading books in the 70s about who's played there and yeah yeah i think i could i could have, if it was still a venue now i could get i could go to a gig and then i'll be like 15 minutes from home <laughs> yeah yeah it's really frustrating something i only noticed this time around is a bit of an editorial cheat the gig that danny attends hmm. uh, at the Rainbow oh, yeah. is actually just like a bit of salvaged footage from the gig that we see at the end yeah, of the film. Yeah, a little bit of outtake isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I notice when you cut to the audience going crazy, there's a lot of a lot of Hazel O'Connor lookalikes in the audience. Yeah, yeah. So you think, why is everyone dressing like... Too soon. Like... Yeah. <laughs> um, and then Danny goes backstage and tries to blag his way into meeting some...
0: There's some weird lookalikes at this sort of backstage party, isn't there? A, yeah. a massive, massive space, considering it's supposed to be a music venue, which is usually all kind of like... Yeah, yeah, exactly. But did you see, like, there's a Paul McCartney and a Rod Stewart and a, a this a David Bowie as he leaves the venue. You know, There's, oh, right. there's okay. lots of lookalikes. Apparently Bowie visited the set and got a haircut from Hazel O'Connor. <laughs> <laughs> so random, isn't it? When you're looking at all the anecdotes, you're like, oh, oh right, really?
1: Yeah. But it's a really nicely lit um, party scene. It's so beautiful, yeah. Yeah, definitely. it's got... I, I,
0: the whole film is really nicely lit. I have yeah. to say that like, I have to flag that up the blu-ray really shows off the quality of craftsmanship it's, in in the yeah. cinematography
1: it's a pretty it's not a crappy blu-ray, but it's not a good one either it's mm. It's olive films and they release a lot of smaller titles, but they don't put any effort in yeah it's they just kind of grab a print, slap it on the telecine quick polish not even that they just put it out but even so, it just looks. It looks really nice.
0: The exteriors on the rainbow with the uh, street lit in the distance look yeah. really nice at night as well.
1: And the, yeah, the the sort of fairly flashy scene in the party, which has got I, I technically I don't know how you would do that, but it's got really beautiful lens flares mm. shot anamorphically. So you've got these kind of oval lens flares at the top of frame coming from these un- undetermined points, yeah, and then yeah. everyone's really nicely lit from below with mm. these like really nice like colours. Yeah, it looks really great. doesn't it? Yeah,
0: it's and of course the character Phil Daniels is playing he's desperate to get into the that part of the music industry so it is his kind of fantasy as well you yeah. know, to be in the best parties with you know the legends of London you know it just you can see why it looks like that why yeah. it needs to he gets ejected twice doesn't he <laughs> gets booted out and then uh, climbs back in through the toilet and then gets booted out again yeah. and then bumps uh, into Hazel O'Connor
1: who's doing more flyposting posting in the street outside the rainbow
0: it's a really nice scene, this one. I think uh, second viewing, I was able to digest it better but because um, it's a little bit awkward where he just gets her to sing one of her songs in the street. But she's actually really good, you know, like really intense, really charismatic. You feel the sort of naive energy of somebody that's finding their voice.
1: I I, we should talk about the performances at this stage. Yeah, this is where they first meet. This is one of my favourite Phil Daniels performances. So good, isn't he? In this, so good. And this is this is when he was like super hot. Yeah, straight off Quadrophenia. Straight off Quadrophenia and Scum. But this is one. I think this is one of his best performances. I think Phil Daniels. You know, when he's on screen, he is Phil Daniels. But Mm. sometimes you can feel he's. Trying a bit too hard, and mm. this one he's just so relaxed. And yeah, because he's so relaxed, the energy a lot is more, great, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, there's a lot more nuance, and you can sort of feel a lot more for the character in this one. Mm-hmm. And Hazel O'Connor is great.
0: Yeah, she's she, really good.
1: You know, I can understand why a pop career didn't didn't go any further because this is just kind of like such a big statement that will define who you are forever. And then it's with, hard
0: to reinvent yourself. And, yeah. And then you'd have to make another feature film yeah. about you know the characters. You know, you'd have to do everything in parallel.
1: Yeah, you're always going to be overshadowed by this, but I'm surprised she didn't do more acting because she's so natural and so yeah, relaxed yeah. on screen. She just comes across as a fully rounded character from the start. Mm-mm. There's there's no I think yeah. she
0: stuck with the music, didn't she, over the acting.
1: Yeah, but she, according to Wikipedia, she had a lot of problems with the music sorting out copyrights and contracts yeah so apparently she didn't get paid for this did she
0: she didn't get any of the royalties or her label was a subsidiary of an american label and there was disputes over who owned her contract and that kind of thing i don't know if she was dropped or quit the label after a second album didn't do anything and then i think she's just sort of kept putting records out every couple of years for the last 40 years so i think she has like a hardcore fan base.
1: It's a shame that her career went that way, given that one of the most kind of like cringeworthy scenes in the film is where the bands sign away their publishing rights for three years in mm-hmm. order to get gigs. Mm-hmm. It's kind of... I mean, I was watching it going, don't do it, don't do yeah, yeah, exactly. it, don't do it, don't do it, and they do.
0: Yeah, yeah, they negotiate two years, don't they, basically. Yeah. And that's pretty much the life of most bands, isn't it, really? It's two years. Yeah. So, after they meet Kate talks Danny into, or he sort of agrees to do her a favour by coming to see her her gig, and it is uh, like like you said before, it's in like a pretty shitty subterranean venue. There's lots of skinheads and uh, yeah. National Front types all Zeke hiling their way through her show, and there's also like a lot of people just spitting at her and throwing booze at the band and it feels pretty rough. There's like a punch-up towards the end yeah, of the, the punch show. it's punch-up's quite... It's blissful, really it? yeah. gnarly, yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things that gives it credibility is that one of the guys in the punch-up just has this mental grin on his face like it's the most <laughs> joyous way to spend a... Because Mon- it's a Monday night as well, isn't it? Yeah. To spend a Monday night is like getting the shit kicked out of you. It's, it's, it's such bliss.
1: Yeah, it's, it's like your stereotypical crap punk gig where a fight (laughs) kicks off and that's the highlight
0: but she's still really good you know you can see like the potential as an artist you know she has like tons of energy she's really focused on getting the message out I think he likes that. You can see there's a, a click.
1: And the whole scene is 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 she, it's something she's moved past, and she's sick of the violence and the casual mm. sexism. She gets touched up by somebody. She gets groped, doesn't
0: she? Yeah. It's funny how how much of that all the way through it. Like they're just
1: calling her a slag and a slut and spitting at her and yeah. grabbing hold of her. You even know? one of the record execs towards the end, having his photo taken, is sliding his hand yeah, towards yeah, that's her it. breast. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, actually, to get that kind of stuff across, the film's pretty... it's pretty progressive. Mm. Uh, but uh, but so there's a scene after they come off stage and Danny's like, I'll, I'll get you a new band, you know, let's, you need new musicians, and he puts a thing in the paper for auditions and people just start turning up at her flat the next morning, don't they?
1: Yeah, she's got quite a nice flat. This is something that, that my wife pointed out and actually Janet Maslin pointed it out in a New York Times review at the, t- oh, right, okay. at the time. She hasn't got a punk's flat really, has she? And this kind of feeds into the thing about it yeah, being maybe. sort of like an art an art rock art students type Yeah yeah. Self expression rather than a genuine, like earthy punk thing. She's got quite a quite a chic flat.
0: Yeah, yeah. But he's more punk, isn't he? Danny. Yeah. You know, he lives in a shitty council tower block yeah. with like graffiti everywhere, the lift doesn't work. Yeah, and
1: all his mates live in squats. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so then you get the 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 mild comedy ensues when various eccentric musicians turn up for their auditions.
0: Yeah, well, I think the first one guy turns up, doesn't he? And he's like really early, he's like a day early or something, and he's talking about his bass and getting a new strap and stuff. He's really, he's really nerdy. <laughs> it's really isn't funny. It? Yeah, but that gives her a chance to sort of nip around and see Danny in his office above a sex shop where this guy's wandering around in the hallways looking for massages <laughs> and stuff. And there's some really nice little details like that. Yeah. And he's kind of at the real blunt end of the music industry, isn't he? Just buying yeah, he's, like he's, bags and bags of seven inches to
1: try and get... He's fixing charts. Yeah, that's Chart, chart rigging is quite simple and straightforward when you read about it. Yeah, yeah. There's certain shops around the country that that log their sales, and that's what generates the chart position. Exactly, so if you yeah. go and buy enough singles from those shops, mm. it will chart. Yeah, he says, you know, I can get someone in the top, top 20, doesn't he? And he's like, well, top 30. Yeah. <laughs> And he's got those little period touches like the singles are all in Boots music bags Mm -hmm. and Virgin Records bags, which, if you're as old as I am... (laughs) Nostalgic. Yeah, so um, they they join forces and start building a band. Yeah, they agreed to do
0: the auditions and sweep through Mm -hmm. London's desperate musicians.
1: Um, And after sort of combing through, a lot of kind of like comedy turns and you meet the other band members who are all ace. <laughs> yeah, uh, is who's the first one is it Jonathan Price? Yeah, Jonathan is Price
0: is the first one that signs on, isn't he? Is it Jeff is
1: that his name? The character. I'm going to call him Jonathan Price. Jonathan Price, yeah. Yeah, who's, he's
0: really good. This is like ahead of Brazil as well, isn't it? You can yeah. see, you can see like why he was spotted after this. He's so good in that.
1: He's perfect. Yeah. He's absolutely he's the best thing in the film, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, and they get away with um, the character is partially deaf, and they get away with like a couple of disability yeah. gags, crap,
1: crap gags. <laughs> yeah. But he's he's so down to earth and so relaxed. But yeah, as he a, sketches as a, out a junkie, junky, yeah.
0: junkie saxophonist who's partially deaf. It sounds like the worst character on paper, doesn't it? And he really makes him human.
1: Yeah, a really kind of living, breathing character from his first appearance. Mm. He's really great, and then the drummer,
0: Mad Mick the drummer. It's Peter Hugo Daly, and. I haven't seen much of him since, except that he's the one-armed priest at the beginning of Gangs of New York that gives them their blessing before they go out for a big punch-up. He was actually in a band with Phil Daniels at the time, wasn't he? Oh, right. Phil Daniels and The Cross, I think they were called. And they just had their album had been released just as Phil Daniels started working on this and basically flopped, I hate to say. Um, It got bad reviews and just kind of didn't have any life, so... I think Phil Daniels has said that he was working on this and was really frustrated that his or her Connor was like this rising star and her music was it was all all happening for her and he was kind of, yeah,
1: but it's only happening because it was being you know, it's part of a package, wasn't it? Yeah, I promoted suppose. by a you know, major mm. record yeah, label it. and stuff with a film behind her. It's, mm. yeah. it's a slight imbalance. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah.
0: It's just bad luck. Uh,
1: but yeah, Mick Mick starts off as a slight caricature, but but throughout the film, he's he's got quite a bit of depth, has not he? Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. It's really likable, sort of.
0: Uh, yeah, there's a scene towards the end where he leaves the band, and but you don't get any inkling that it's coming. Just he's at the gig finishes and kicks his drums over and storms out. Yeah, and you're like, oh, he's out of the band, and it's all been happening in his head, mm. and you haven't even seen it, but you just know straight away what he's thinking. It's really he's really good.
1: And the final two are the um, very professional guitarist and, and bassist. <laughs> yeah, they're um, living in a squat, aren't they? Yes, yeah, just... but the guitarist, I don't know the actor's name.
0: So his name is Mark Wingett, and. He was in Quadrophenia. That was his first film. Ah. Yeah, he's um, the guy that ends up with Leslie Ash after she dumps... uh, Okay,
1: so he's the best mate, really. Yeah, 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 Yeah.
0: that's it. Um, Who isn't uh, Ray Winston. So this was 1980, and then in 1983, he was in a pilot called Wooden Top, where he played a police officer called Jim Carver. The pilot was commissioned as the Bill. The Bill. And he basically played that character then for, like, 25 years. That That was his career, yeah. And, you know, one of those most loved British TV characters ever, yeah. you know, I think. So, yeah, he sort of found his place. And then I think after that finished, he went back to doing films and bits and bobs. So he's right. still kind of kicking around.
1: Yeah. And the bass player is Gary Tibbs.
0: Gary Tibbs from Adam and the Ants. Adam and the Ants. I know. He's, and Roxy Music. Roxy Music, yeah.
1: And it re- i got to say... He's really good as well, isn't it he? It really helps the film. Yeah. A, that he's a good actor. And yeah. B, that he plays the bass. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, a lot of the performance scenes don't, Okay, this is a little sidebar, but mm. this is another slight problem I have with the approach to the film, is it's just a technical thing. The music sounds very polished, and mm. you know that they've gone into the studio with Tony Visconti, yeah, yeah, done all the mixes, and that's it, and that's what they're miming to when they're on stage. Yeah. There's maybe a little bit of overdubbing, but it really hurts whenever you cut to Hazel O'Connor performing on stage and she's lip-syncing to a very polished yeah, studio yeah, sure. performance. But what helps Yeah, it just undermines the authenticity a little, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Um it would've been so it's easy. A subconscious. Just, yeah. Just or just to do instrumental mixes that she mm-hmm. could then shout over the top of mm. for the takes and just dub that in. But what helps tie it together for me is having Gary Tibbs, yeah. a proper bassist, playing the bass lines on stage yeah. in his shots.
0: There's a brilliant scene in in their first gig when they're in the pub and there's skinheads everywhere and he's just looking at Phil Daniels and he's like, Turn it up! I can't, can't hear myself! Turn it up! You know, he's really like, you know, he's got that sort of musician's thing about him being the centre of the band.
1: So they come together in a band and I've got to say that the sort of little rehearsal playing in a squat type stuff does make it actually feel like it's a band coming together. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it seems, it actually feels like it works. And they start gigging.
0: The first gig is um, it kicks off. There's like a, there's a like a black punk in there who pulls the curtains off and gets gets ejected halfway through the show. I don't know anything about that guy, but he looks pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I didn't notice he was black actually. It's quite a quick shot. Um, um, the transfer is yeah. not great.
0: And the um, the landlords. It's yeah, it's
1: one of the it's one of the few little sporting bits that's a little bit too broad. Yeah, yeah. He's and I know his voice maybe from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Something he's always yeah. plays those sort of shifty English characters. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So they, um, yeah, their their first gig or first gigs, are kind of always up against the fact that they're in shitty small venues with the ever-present threat of of violence. There always seems to be National Front skinheads hanging around at the back of whatever venue they're at, and they are looking for. Sort of promotion. Well, they're looking to
0: make the next step, aren't they? I think the band are already pressing for something professional. Yeah. Not to just be like gigging around shitholes. Yeah, exactly. So Danny goes back to the label that he's been buying all of those seven inches for to get their chart act higher up. Do you, do you remember the name of the uh, record Susie's, label? Uh, Overlord Records. <laughs> Overlord Records, yeah, that's pretty on the nose,
1: isn't it? The promoters agree to give them gigs in return for, and this just makes me start to. <laughs> Start to seize up, um, so signing away the publishing rights to their music for for two years.
0: There's a scene where they end up uh, recording their their seven inch in a really sort of shabby recording studio run With by Richard Griffith. Richard Griffiths. Yeah. yeah, I really like that scene where they're all uh, they come barreling out of the sound booth and they're like, "What is this button doing?" He's like, "That's the drums." He's like, "Turn it up!" And they're they're all shouting, "Turn it up! Turn it! Up, turn the vocals up!" And then they just pull the gear away and get some like electronic feedback, and they're like, "That's it. That's the sound." Yeah, that's it's quite, a, it's quite cute.
1: I, I, that's that's not one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> it's, it's. I think
0: they're all good in it though. They're all really funny and yeah. you know, in the moment.
1: So they have a single, um, and they're getting promoted. There's a couple of
0: nice sequences in the in the first act that I really like. One is when they're doing their squat rehearsal and the cops turn up. This is just after they've got a little bit of cash. They do a few rehearsals and then they go on. A, a quick tour of the UK, and the cops bust in, and that's when they're hassling the drummer. Yeah, and he's really good. He's just talking about like going to his day uh, center, his day center, yeah, and, and reporting the cops.
1: Well, it kind of kind of suggests some mild mental illness as well for the character, which is is very very subtly touched on. But, yeah, yeah. But, not, but he comes. he's, he's struggling basically, he's, isn't
0: he? Yeah. Like, and the drumming is the only thing that sort of keeps him together. Yeah. And what what that sequence is nice for, and it happens quite a few times in the film, is that the band will have an experience and then it'll inform Kate's songwriting. And sometimes it's really clunky, you know. Like, uh... I... <laughs> the scene where uh, they're back at Kate's flat and it's just Kate and Danny, and he, he says... <laughs> oh, this coffee tastes funny. And she's like, it's tea. <laughs> it's like, that. So, like, oh my God. And then the song kicks in. It's like, you drink your coffee. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, that's... Uh... But then the stuff with with the cops, and it's like, for the first time, she's seen how hassled minorities and the poor are in the city by the cops. And like, she has that whole awakening mm. and it informs some of the lyrics. I think that stuff's really good. Um, and then it's a the nice scene where they sort of go on tour to a few venues as they're, building up their kind of reputation and yeah they go they go to uh, they go to Coventry and Stockport Stoke as well <laughs> and Stoke yeah. yeah I've been to Stoke with a band oh. so, yeah for a gig as well did Rock um yeah it was it was good fun yeah, yeah. but I did notice in uh, some of those tour shots in a couple of the reverses you can see members of the crew and you can see the lamps Oh really uh, yeah and there's even one of the the gig where it's quite a really good gig for them and they're sort of crowded off stage and um in the reverse shot you can see somebody with drumsticks just keeping time for them one two three four as they're sort of playing along to the playback Ah, yeah yeah it was just a little bit jarring i didn't see that because it's so beautifully lit you can see everybody (laughs) (laughs) uh, yeah just sort of you know it's just two second uh
1: you know there's a there's a really nice interlude um at the end of one of the gigs it's like christmas eve isn't it
0: yeah they're trying to get back but there's a train strike on so they're trying to get back from the north of van has broken down it's the band you know doing that kind of hard days night thing running through the station
1: running through the train as well um but it's it it ends really nicely you think oh it's just going to be some band hijinks but then you, you know danny and kate finally get together and it's it's a really nice scene. it's a really nice a really genuine, genuine tender, scene isn't it, isn't it? Yeah.
0: yeah 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 and they're both brilliant in that again yeah. Do you know it's the um, gentleman, the station conductor or whatever? Oh
1: yes, yeah, Jim Broadbent. <laughs> Jim
0: Broadbent, looking about seventy. Has he ever not looked seventy? He looks so old, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, doing quite a broad early. Take. Yeah, well, he's, he's done tons of Mike Lee by then, I think. Yeah, I guess. Mm.
0: So the kind of, I guess the, before they signed to the label, the sort of the high point of their independence is them playing a gig at a venue called the, the Music Machine during a power cut.
1: It's Coco in Camden. Oh, is it Coco? Yeah. Oh, right, okay, yeah, yeah. It was a Music Machine, um, which lent its name to the 1970s roller disco movie. Oh, yeah, okay. Which I think you can get on YouTube. Uh-huh. Um, and then it was the Camden Palais. Oh, right, and yeah. And then yeah. it was Coco. Yeah, cool. So many, many gigs there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> It's still going, place. right, as well? That's, Absolutely that's beautiful. Nice. yeah,
0: yeah. There's a a scene beforehand where the radio talks about Margaret Thatcher and the decline in music sales except for disco which is still
1: going steady <laughs> yeah just about in nineteen eighty yeah. yeah little did they know but yeah the gig at the music machine is um it's it's quite odd because what i didn't didn't remember it and watching it this time I was not initially expecting much from the scene. I yeah, thought yeah. it might be a little bit over the top and theatrical.
0: Yeah, yeah. But it's brilliant. It's really it's good. It's a really yeah. good scene. So in in the uh, the gig, they basically come on stage, play a few bars, and then there's a power cut. And the audience are kind of, you know, they've everybody's smoking, so they've all got their lighters and they're setting yeah. stuff on fire. And it looks like it's <laughs> about to kick off. The record executives are there to watch this gig. And it's that moment where a band... steps up
1: sinks or swim yeah
0: Yeah, that's it they step up and they take control of the audience and you know they're all singing along and they do it acoustically and phil daniels is just using torches to light the band yeah it's a it's a really kind of triumphant
1: it built so well because the song itself i mean fee doesn't start out that promisingly but it just Mm. it gets better and better yeah yeah and then the cross-cutting between them and the audience the audience yeah really getting it really getting it and then yeah it's just the excitement of it and there's I was singing that song all day yesterday <laughs> after watching the film because it's, it's just got some really nice bits. It's got it. a nice sort of marching beat as well, yeah. hasn't it? and it, the song gets faster and faster and the cross-cutting gets faster and faster. Right. It's just really exciting scene. Everything yeah, yeah. about it really clicks by the end.
0: Yeah, it's a nice kind of strobey flurry of editing at the end as yeah. well, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, it's really nice, really satisfying. Yeah, and you feel like, oh, that's it. You know, they've established themselves. They're, yeah. they're kind of ready for what comes next. They're tight as a band.
1: But things don't seem to improve that much, do they?
0: No, it's until they sign their life away. They're they're still kind of doing
1: pretty poor gigs. But this is this is another thing that that we're starting to talk about the music industry and how the film approaches the music industry. This is another failing of the movie for me is that it doesn't understand record labels. It only understands record labels as big megalithic chart record labels, like at this period there were some of the best independent labels around yeah i mean you did a virgin kind of
0: playing against the system as well didn't you at this point they
1: virgin were... at this point were already quite big they were like a, a big a big indie but you had you know you had rough trade mm. you know you had a lot of really good smaller labels mute, yeah, yeah. mute records mm-hmm. managed to get you know bands into the top ten yeah that's true um you had a lot of smaller labels, but they instantly go to the biggest crappiest. Yeah. You know, Overlord Records. <laughs> this film doesn't understand really anything that's going on in the scene it's describing, mm. uh, and it just at this point it, this is but where isn't it starts it like to...
0: a cautionary tale. You know, yeah, the this... fact that she is seduced by the the giant.
1: But it's a big clumsy cautionary tale. That it's because if she'd as... have gone
0: to like a small indie, they'd have put out the singles step by step. Her success would have grown, but she'd have maintained her artistic integrity, and then gone on to have a, a long you know 20, 30 year career. <laughs> or, but
1: this is this is without... where yeah this is where I'm sort of fantasy football rewriting movie <laughs> yeah, exactly. from an armchair. But for me, it would be like a two and a half three hour movie where she actually builds a career on the basis of what she wants She's to very, do. It's Kate Bush. She's just very successful, independent, and, yeah. then, and then retires well or, or, or no you, you'd you still have it being chipped away because when you start getting comfortable and the money starts coming in then you just start doing whatever you know will keep that coming in but this this movie just signs them up to a major label which will automatically within the first meeting start making them compromise yeah, yeah. the whole discussion about oh we can't put a song with the word ass in the title in the on lyrics, the radio on yeah. the radio so how about bum instead mm-hmm. or nose mm. um, and it's it's Yeah, this is where it stops being realistic for me. This is where it becomes just another, oh, you know, another kind of selling your soul story. Uh, And it happens too quickly. And I I kind of lose sight of what the character is because you don't get any sense that she's pushing against it, really. You don't get any sense. She's just kind of like a bit glum and a bit staring into the distance and a bit huffy sometimes. But at the same time, she is kind of quite, like easily maneuvered into all these things.
0: Well, I think yeah. There's because there's this sort of central trauma at the in the middle of the film when yeah. they, they uh, the record label suggests that they should play like a um, what is it anti nineteen eighty
1: four. Oh, you're absolutely right. Actually. March yeah,
0: yeah. Um, gig. It looks like it's under the Westway or something, doesn't it? Yeah. Um Like an anti-fascist march because when you say nineteen eighty four now, it's like you know so many years ago. And they're they're about to bail on the gig. They've been put on the back of like a, a truck to play.
1: Well, it's not so much that it's that there's loads of other bands playing and It's yeah. just a bit of.
0: It's, it's just a shambles, just isn't vicious, it? Basically, it, yeah. really badly organized, and they're on a, a truck, a bit like a float. In um, they just uh, they want the the band's name on the side, and it just says Overlord Records. And they decide to ditch the gig, and they're reversing the truck away from the crowd when they back into. Uh, a national front march all these kind of skinheads seek hiling and you know getting ready to uh to fight all these sort of peaceful uh demonstrators
1: well they're not that peaceful i mean it's a proper rock oh, yeah that's true yeah, it kicks off yeah yeah <laughs> i'm not i'm not saying yeah that there's no, good people on both sides <laughs> yeah, but yeah everyone's everyone's Donald up Trump. for a fight yeah. um it's a proper like quite even-handed fight
0: yeah yeah really brutal actually when, yeah. it, when it kicks off it's it's really terrifying and that's definitely one of those sequences i remember as a kid yeah. finally watching the film expecting a nice yeah. or pleasant musical and i i found that sequence really terrifying and actually it's still quite hard to watch it's, yeah. it's really scary the bricks and i think this is where we see her who she wants to be you know fighting for the 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 voiceless and she's standing on the back of the truck and she's screaming like kill them you know kill the the Nazis and even Danny's trying to pull her back and she's like screaming in his face you know it feels like she's embracing the the chaos and the maelstrom uh, until one of the guys in the crowd looks like a skinhead comes out covered in blood screaming in her face
1: and he dies dies in front of her yeah yeah. Yeah, I completely take your point that's yeah, I wasn't I wasn't taking on board the fact that she's completely shattered by that, so she yeah, yeah. is easily maneuvered around mm. by the record label afterwards.
0: Yeah, after that she's a she's a pawn, isn't she? Yeah. That that that's the first inkling of her you know, impending nervous breakdown. Yeah.
1: This I should point out, this is where the American version starts making cuts to the film. Um immediately after the immediately after the, the kind of riot and the death. Um there's a scene in the studio where Kate's Performing, but but breaks down, and Danny kind of ushers her out. She's really sobbing, isn't she? It's, yeah. re, it's really believable. Yeah, um, and she, you know, meets the record company doctor for the first time, who plays a key role later in her life. Yeah, yeah. That's that's removed. I from mean, that stuff as
0: well. You think, you know, to show that a record label has a doctor on call who's administering, you know, amphetamines or whatever to artists, you know, yeah. that's pretty dark, and again, pretty along with the sort of the more feminist points i think that's the darker side of the record label that's that's authentic that's somebody that's been there and had that experience
1: yeah yeah it's pretty grim so from this point on um it's it's effectively like a, an extended montage isn't it the film from here on it's it's kind yeah. of yeah skips through
0: there's not too much character stuff now they've set everybody up nicely so it's yeah. you know let's rattle along now
1: so, yeah, so, so Kate's basically in the hands of, of. We haven't really mentioned the record execs who are quite nicely played, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah They've got a, a
0: strange dynamic, haven't yeah,
1: they? Yeah. There's a trio of record execs, one of whom looks a little bit like Richard O'Brien. Um, oh, yeah. And the other one is is Mark Wing Davey, say for Beeble Brocks. Yeah, yeah. Um, who gives a really nice, kind of relaxed, smooth. Yeah, yeah. comfortable performance there's a really
0: nice scene where they go and watch the band Breaking Glass and his uh, cohort, the guy with the curly hair is saying to him, when was the last time you were here 1969, and he was like no, 1967, and I missed my caftan <laughs>
1: <laughs> he plays really well against Phil Daniels in their early scenes, because Danny comes in to, to, to kind of extort favours out of him and and blackmails him about his record rigging um, and he's you know he's really nice Really nice, sort of smooth but embarrassed performance. Yeah, yeah, piss off will you? Yeah, leave me alone. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. So these and the the third exec is is the one with the big hair who is more sort of the house producer, promoter type guy, isn't he? Yeah, he's
0: got so much energy for the music and mm. really is just all about sculpting it into something commercial and making as much money as possible, but pretending to be the uh, yeah. s- you know talking about cosmic energy,
1: and <laughs> you know all of that stuff, isn't he? So from this point on, the, the band are becoming more and more successful and playing bigger gigs, but at the same time, the rough edges are being... Are being yeah, so Kate's 17. on the verge
0: of a nervous breakdown, and Danny's the only one that flags it up, and everyone else, you know, the the two kind of slick members of the band and the, the record label are all like, let's just keep pushing
1: and, yeah. and cash in while we can. And they introduce, um, I guess, I'm going to use that term again, like a, an art rock producer, oh, yeah. a wealthy producer played by John Finch, yeah. who's just... Immaculately smooth, and yeah, yeah, yeah they go yeah. to visit him, and he's a huge country mansion, mm. and and he kind of takes over the whole. effectively becomes the manager of, of the band. Yeah, that's it. Um, and kind of moves them into a kind of like a, a glossy neon art pop kind of. Yeah,
0: thing. no, there's a really nice sequence where he's like we should do a music video for this, and <laughs> one of the guys is like, oh yeah, you know this is what I imagine. He's like, no, we need neon tubes, yeah, a forest of neon. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. 40 years later
1: music videos still look exactly the same as well don't they <laughs> so we're into the last act of the film effectively um, and it's where they've signed to this inexplicably signed to this major label which is sanding down all the rough edges um, all the sort of song performances are a lot more kind of straightforward you see it in their live performances in the last tour yeah but they're starting to get the um,
0: the polish to the the look as well aren't they they're moving towards this sort of futuristic look yeah. and the bands are starting to make their movements more mechanical more robot-like as well they're sort of moving they're getting the image together aren't they
1: yeah but it, it comes across as more sort of like a, a d- polished dance routines rather, yeah, than, yeah, rather than you know theatrics yeah um, yeah. Uh, yeah and throughout the whole of this section it, it is quite montage and there's a lot of they use a lot of the songs, particularly "Will You," um, is used as the sad music Mm-mm. throughout the entire thing, and I think the film's just kind of on autopilot at this point. I, I I miss Kate's character because she's effectively on on tranquilizers. Yeah, that's right. The whole time.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. It does suffer a little bit from not having her energy. She's
1: she's absent from it. She's there, but she's just looking unhappy about everything. Um and you know, obviously just being tranquilized and being manoeuvred around by the But I do feel company.
0: like we, we feel that loss as well. We feel the loss of her, and especially after Danny leaves the group, you know, leaves them
1: as their manager. We feel how alone she is. and I, I'm very confused by some of the scenes later in the film, by how they play with their character. If it had been consistent that she was kind of tranquilized and kind of out of it and stuff like that, I could understand it. And, you know, you do miss her for that. Well, there's a couple of scenes there's obviously the key scene where she goes to a phone-in oh yeah and talks to some fans from london yeah yeah um and it's interestingly done it kind of it cross cuts between these kind of pans around the studio and or just kind of like lateral movements, sideways movements across kate mm. and then it cuts to exterior like cityscape shots yeah, yeah, yeah. of you know and it's kind of like the paranoia of the outside world versus mm-hmm. kate's interior world it's quite difficult for me because it's the only scene that suggests that she's becoming paranoid and is losing touch with her fan base and reality and and because yeah. she's quite spiky and brittle and aggressive but at that point
0: us. we've seen how much she's given over responsibility for herself to those around her but she's also still adamant that she's in control so i think it's kind of it's like a, a, a tragedy for us as the audience watching her believing that she's in control of her life and we're seeing that she clearly isn't.
1: But if, if they'd managed to kind of balance the different elements a bit better rather than just... And the, the other scene that bugs me is um, the last scene with uh, Jonathan Price's saxophonist. Oh, yeah. Where they... Are they are they back at Kate's they're flat? At,
0: they're at Kate's flat after the record's gone platinum. Um, and That's they've, right, they've yeah. They've got the and platinum disc and they're just chucking
1: around. But she's like... she's. Getting pissed at a party and, and having fun. Hmm. Um, and it just seems a bit at odds with the sort of downbeat, miserable Kate that we've seen in all the other scenes. Yeah, yeah. And then obviously towards the end of it, you know. Um, but yeah, when yeah she talked... can't
0: just stay in that frame of mind all the way, though. But I it think... just. The... And she's trying to enjoy herself, but she's still crying at the end of the scene. Like. Y- it...
1: Yeah, it doesn't work for me hmm. because, I don't know, the, the scenes just don't tie up that well for me.
0: I mean, I it's can, very bu- bullet pointed. To be fair, yeah.
1: So it do, it doesn't seem like a it doesn't seem particularly well balanced. If they managed to balance out the fact that she was, you know, there were hedonistic moments and there was moments of enjoyment and there was, you know, other times when she's almost catatonic and then other times when she's paranoid. You know, you, there are you know other other movies and performances yeah, that yeah, can sure. balance those things rather than just like do three specific scenes that don't really match. Yeah. That yeah. well, that that jar with each other.
0: Yeah. Um, so. You know, she goes for the radio phone in, the DJ. I know what you're going to say. Jonathan Lynn. I did the same research. Yeah, I know. It's, it's mad, isn't it? When you're like. Yeah. Because he sort of feels slightly familiar, and I think he was kind of kicking around as an actor. And then when you sort of just do a little bit of cross reference, turns out like he's the guy that created and wrote Yes Minister. Yeah. And, you know, came back to it for Yes Prime Minister. And he also uh, directed Clue, Nuns on the Run, My Cousin Vinny, yeah, The so Whole Nine Yards, and The Fighting Temptations with Beyonce. Yeah. Like, that, that guy is, you know, force in, in his own right.
1: Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I I looked him up, because I recognised him as an actor yeah, in yeah. the scene of that. And I looked him up, and the first thing is, as an actor, like, oh yeah, I know him from The Knowledge. Oh yeah, Who's okay. in The Knowledge, he's, he's the Jewish cabbie in that. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? No. It's that's really the fifth
0: good. time you mentioned it. I'm cringing every time you I, it's, was, I thought you'd be like, "Have you seen that?" I'm like, no.
1: No. <laughs> it's um oh, it's fantastic. Um and then obviously you go through everything else on his IMDb yeah. Oh my god, it's that Jonathan Lynn. It's yeah, this, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah,
0: it's pretty impressive. Yeah. He's quite good in that scene where he just repeats what the caller the question the caller's asked yeah. <laughs> in like a radio DJ voice. <laughs> I think what she's asking is <laughs>
1: Um, and then we really are into the last legs of the film aren't we I mean should we talk about Danny leaving
0: who leaves first it's Danny leaves first because he's kind of feels like he's not allowed to express himself I think he tries to get them to do an encore doesn't he a gig and everyone basically tells him to piss off
1: well I think there's there's a few scenes that set up Danny being undermined by the record company you've got the, the kind of we should know the character's name I guess but it's the guy from the record label. yeah he's, he's talking b- to he's the been, band yeah he's in been slyly undermining yeah. him and, and then undermining him and then doing the same thing in reverse yeah with, yeah with, trying to play them off Danny. against each other so he's kind of he's, his management of the band has been sort of undermined just already a wedge and, yeah. yeah and they're not really listening to him when, when he asks them to do anything they don't mm. want to do they don't want to do an encore at a big show mm. um, and he wants them to um, and then immediately after that on the tour bus he just kind of yeah, he stops the bus, doesn't he, gets off
0: in the middle of nowhere. Middle of nowhere. Yeah, and the next time we see him, there's a couple of weird scenes. There's one after uh, Mick, the drummer, has left the band, and he turns up and Danny's at, like, a, a bar or something. He just calls it, like, his metal
1: palace, doesn't he, or Yeah, something. I mean, it's it's one of those things. Danny's, like, the other driving force of the film that who disappears from the film by the end, mm. but you feel that you have to have a couple of scenes to keep him in. So I'm guessing that he's setting up a music venue. Yeah, something like that, isn't it? But it just looks like a like a, 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 site a building really. site, yeah. building site made mm. of scaffolding poles. Mm. Um, so yeah, there are a couple of scenes. Because
0: um, then after so drummer leaves and then afterwards the saxophonist leaves and they all come back to the same space, don't they, to have another chat about how bad Kate's doing. Yeah. So that Danny is still kind of engaged in her journey, even though he's.
1: He's not. He's not. And her journey's just kind of, um, just on a fairly predictable, not even self-destructive, is it? She's just kind of burning out. Yeah, she's a puppet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the whole thing kind of builds up to, to the big musical number at the end, which is, it's odd and contradictory that it's such, it's a really good song.
0: It's a brilliant song. It's and a it's, really great performance. And you it's know, really well staged. Yeah.
1: Um, and it's kind of got they're this... all tight it's, yep.
0: uh, it sounds great looks great it's the kind of gig you want to be at
1: yeah um, yeah the stage design is great it kind of predates Tron by about two or three yeah, years. yeah yeah
0: and Blade Runner I'm going to yeah. say it Blade Runner
1: <laughs> and it's got lasers in <laughs> lasers. lasers always look good
0: yeah lasers look cool and a stage that rises up yeah the audience is uh, it's like all faces from the new wave it's Boy George and people. Jonathan Burns. Ross is in there apparently Jonathan Ross <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> But yeah, it's this it's an amazing gig. And you can see in the American version, it just kind of finishes at the end of that gig as if yeah, it's a triumphant like, like, note. Yeah,
0: like a freeze frame on her. But she's had... She's yeah. taken loads yeah. of tranquilizers and is about to pass out and doesn't want to go on stage. So the guys from the label pin her down and give her a steroid or whatever it is, yeah. speed injections. And her face is terrified. It's heartbroken. And then they just march her out on stage and off she goes and like delivers really delivers
1: there's an amazing shot I'm sorry to, to step back there's an amazing shot backstage before the performance it's like a hall of mirrors shot yeah yeah where she's sitting in front of the dressing room mirror and and I guess there's another mirror behind her and you know yeah, you line yeah. up two mirrors yeah. and you get that. but I, I I don't how you've shot stuff how do you mm. do that do you, are you behind one of the well I'd say one, one of mirrors the mirrors was
0: probably a two way mirror or one way mirror whatever they call it yeah. you know like in a police station so the camera would be behind there so she's able to look into the lens of the camera but not break the, uh, the, ref- the arc of all those reflections
1: that's absolutely incredible because yeah, you, start, you start
0: Citizen Kane isn't it
1: yeah. Orson Welles did it in Citizen Kane you start far in you see her with her reflection then you pull back and realise mm-hmm. that one is a reflection and the other yeah, is real yeah, and yeah, then yeah. back again he's like oh this is really yeah, it's great really clever.
0: yeah there's loads of those flourishes in the film though. Mm-hmm. I mean we should talk about the cinematography as well and the cinematographer Stephen Goldblatt mm-hmm. who's who, who like, this is his debut film. I feel like he's at this point he's done like tons of commercials and I want to say tons of music videos, but it's only 1980 so yeah, probably, probably a, yeah, probably a few. But he's um, he was a photojournalist, Stephen Goldblatt, right, uh, working for um, the Times. But he's also one of the photographers that went with the Beatles on the Mad Day Out. And took pictures of them. So his black and white picture of the Beatles in Regent's Park, surrounded by kids, is on the gatefold, the interior gatefold for the Blue Album. So So he's properly, uh, you know, of a photographic...
1: Yeah, rock (laughs) photograph. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Background,
0: yeah. Yeah, so I think, yeah, his, you know, his trajectory was, obviously this is as a stepping stone, but, you know, it just feels like he was always going to be a great cinematographer. Yeah. And from this he went to Outland?
1: Sort of Outland, apparently. Um, that's his next credit, but from what I've read, he was rather sneakily and duplicitously hired by Peter Hyams oh to be the fool guy, because uh, Hyams was using a lot of um, in-camera effects in that, a lot of back projection and timed But he was effects. moving
0: into... Shooting and directing, wasn't he? Peter Hyams at the time,
1: yeah, he was, he was he wrote and directed, but he was also shooting. Mm. Um, but so he was effectively the DP of the movie, but he wanted somebody else listed as the DP so that if a lot of the stuff didn't work, he wouldn't get the blame. Um, which I think Stephen Goldblatt has spoken about since, oh, right, okay. it's not but okay. he, because it was his first American credit, he just kind of shrugged and said, Yeah, okay,
0: he shot commercials for Hugh Hudson, Alan Parker, and Ridley Scott. So he's kind of yeah in that company, and then uh, he went. To, uh, he did The Hunger. Did he the Tony Scott film? Oh, yeah, okay, which is shot in the U K to look like New York, isn't it?
1: I'm ashamed to say I only started watching The Hunger quite recently. Oh, I yeah. couldn't get through it. All oh, right, okay. It's that I thought that sort of thing was never my cup of tea, and I thought <laughs> after some years had passed, I might be able to just mm. you know view it with some distance. But I can't do it.
0: You didn't like Bella Lugosi's dead at the beginning. No. I don't like Bauhaus. Oh, no. So, uh, Stephen Goldblatt went to the States to work as a DP, shot Lethal Weapon 1 and 2, worked with Alan J. Bakula on Consenting Adults oh, yeah. and the Pelican Brief, and then he was nominated for an Oscar. Do you know what he was nominated for an Oscar for?
1: I, I know it's going to be something bad because you're saying it with that tone of voice. <laughs> what is it?
0: <laughs> Batman Forever.
1: Batman Forever.
0: The Val Kilmer Batman
1: okay I, yeah I can sort of see that I know. Yeah, it's
0: big and colorful and probably quite fresh I think
1: it's quite sophisticated photography as yeah, well yeah. from what I've seen on bits of TV before I quickly switched it off <laughs> it's quite interesting the um, the editor and this is one of the last people I looked up oddly enough the editor of this movie um, had had a uh, Again, he's one of those people like like Goldblatt would be the perfect photographer for this. Mm. He's he's the perfect editor for it. He'd spent the seventies doing um, some of Ken Russell's oh, okay. music based movies, and he also did um, That'll Be the Day, and then the sequel oh, right. Stardust. Oh, right, and okay. Stardust is another movie that would be a good double bill for this. Yeah, yeah, it has a lot of the same failings, and that the timeline's too compressed, mm-hmm. and it simplifies the you know the story of success will grind you down, or success will destroy your soul mm. um, yeah he's the editor on that uh, Okay. Um, yeah that'll be the day and Stardust are, are very good comparisons with this um, that'll be the day is more sort of a slice of life movie it's about sort of living in the 50s with the influence, influence of rock and roll and then Stardust decides to turn it into a biopic where the lead character played by David Essex actually joins a rock and roll band and becomes you know a 60s level superstar mm-hmm. um and then becomes like a 70s level not prog rock but pompous um arse rock type superstar you know <laughs> a rock opera type music yeah sure sure um and then goes to live in in a castle in seclusion and takes drugs all the time and eventually overdoses and dies mm. um but it's all compressed into less than two hours yeah it, yeah it just flies by very quickly and simplistically, mm-hmm. which is quite a lot like the second half of Breaking Glass, really.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the triumphant final sequence of the band on stage, delivering a rendition of Eighth Day, a song that I really remember yeah, as a kid. Yeah, it was, it, yeah. Um, although I did get the lyrics mixed up with um, some of the lyrics from down in the tube station at midnight. I think when I was trying to say, oh no, that's a different song yeah and then how the British and the American versions diverge here Yeah, American so, version ends with like a freeze frame on her face sort of ambiguous it.
1: maybe that's as close as it gets well I don't know because it's cut out all explicit references to any kind of mental breakdown mm. they've lost the shot immediately after the riot where she's breaking down in the studio yeah, yeah. they've lost that scene rather um, um And then they lose a couple of little snippets later on, which are more about daddy's character. Mm. But then they lose the entire ending of the movie where after the whole eighth day performance, she's effectively hospitalized.
0: Well, but also after the performance, she bolts off stage and runs and gets back on the tube. So like you talk about a really brilliant bookend with the opening sequence where she's young coming in to London and, you know, setting herself up and trying to get gigs and to, the world is hers and she gets on the tube at the end, absolutely destroyed. And there's yeah, look, and it's lookalikes it's of her
1: semi fantasy sequence where she's yeah it's being attacked isn't. by, by her past. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah.
0: It's a really nice sequence that and almost feels like that's where the, the film should end, but it ends with somebody screaming in her face, <laughs> smothering her and then it flashes to white, you know? So that would be a pretty bummer ending. So, you know, I don't know the stuff in the, the hospital, whether that's tagged on.
1: Well, that's that's the that's the original ending was Danny Singer in the hospital.
0: But do you feel like that was the original scripted ending because yeah, yeah, I think the so. book ending is so neat with the, the train carriage.
1: No, I, I I have a feeling that's there's a big thing with punishing pop stars mm. in British movies, especially like in, women. Uh yeah, but they they killed off David Essex at the end of Stardust because he became, you know, if you become too successful and become too much part of the music system hmm. you must be punished by losing your sanity or mm-hmm. lo- or your life yeah yeah and i think that was very much like the end game of this is that she ends up in a mental institution completely shattered yeah yeah um, do you think she's going to recover or is um, she you know brain damaged you i think the scene gives her every opportunity if if that's what they wanted then danny brings her a little portable synthesizer yeah if you wanted to suggest that she was going to kind of put herself back together again, that would be the opportunity where mm. she could look at it and, you know, perhaps start to recover some of herself, and mm. then you cut away. But it doesn't. Yeah, the end shot is just Danny, isn't it, walking away from the mental institute.
0: He's still his future ahead of him, I guess, sort of yeah. gets out scot free. Uh, after the film came out, Hazel O'Connor toured the um, soundtrack. Basically, went on tour. Her support band were. Duran Duran. Right. Um, but she was also dating Hugh Cornwell from The Stranglers. Yes. Yeah. And he got banged up for heroin possession. Apparently the judge, when he was caught with heroin, because he was a star, just slammed him with the maximum custodial sentence a couple of months. But The Stranglers had a few two gigs booked in at The Rainbow, which is the venue that we see in the film. Yeah. Uh, I actually got this from Phil Daniels' interview. So he went on stage and performed a few songs for The Stranglers, and so did Hazel O'Connor, and so did Toya. Ian Jury. And then Hugh's guitar parts were covered by Robert Fripp, Wilco Johnson, and Robert Smith from The Cure. And apparently Joy Division were the support band on the second night.
1: (laughs) Oh, amazing.
0: So I guess having not seen the film for a few years, I was surprised that you know, for all of its faults, how well it holds up and holds together. You know, I can see the problems with it, but they don't bother me enough to sort of.
1: No, I, I agree. I I feel like I've spent the last hour picking it apart, but the fact is that it's an extremely well made. Um, it's really solid it's really entertaining solid. yeah
0: the, the songs are really good and I'd, I'd
1: happily recommend
0: it and not really without any caveats you know yeah. I'd be like you know it's 40 years old so bear that in mind but I think the performances hold up you yeah. know they're, both the, the leads are great yeah it's um, it's
1: you know it's, it's Tightly written and constructed, it's really nicely directed. It's beautifully, beautifully shot. Beautifully shot. And we're not just talking about lighting, like a lot of the camera blocking and the moves are yeah, just definitely. really good. Yeah, there's
0: a really yeah. nice sequence where it pans up from a homeless guy and goes up to the office window. Yeah. You know,
1: it's and just little little moments like, you know, the first time that um Danny and Kate mean, oh, it's after a gig and they're going back to his place. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's just starting the interior, seeing them approach and then following them up to the lift yeah, or yeah, yeah. it's just one of those really nice, satisfying bits of blocking. There's loads mm-hmm. of little nice creative touches all the way through it's just a yeah, it's really... a really confidently made film isn't yeah. it if you'd
0: watched it maybe 10 years ago it might feel dated but yeah. it's kind of now you know it's, 39 it's, years later it's, it's kind moved of beyond fashion to be beyond yeah. dated it's just yeah, that's like it. a time capsule Yeah, isn't exactly it? yeah you know let's hope maybe for its 40th anniversary there's a some minor interest or something just yeah, to kind of know. get it back on the radar at least i think there's a whole generation that would probably you know, <laughs> who were born 20 years after it was made that might really yeah. respond to it.
1: It's fairly lucky that, that that there are, you know, you can buy it on DVD in the UK and you can buy it on Blu-ray in America. Um, and we were saying earlier, I mean, before we started recording, that there's, you know, one of the terrible things about smaller British films is that they, they literally disappear off the face of the yeah, earth. Yeah. This one is still out there, mm-hmm. but it would be nice if it was better known. Mm, it would be nice if it was more front and centre, if... Because it's a it's a good enough movie. Yeah, I mean, if next
0: year it was at the BFI on a restoration on screen one, yeah, I'd go and see it again.
1: Yeah, it would be a good flip side candidate. Mm. Mm. I think it's you know it's and you say we we say it's a time capsule, obviously for for people of a certain age and certain you know most likely for English people and more specifically Londoners, mm. it's a movie you've got to see because it's just glimpses of London that you vaguely remember. Yeah, it's, it. It. it's that perfect time capsule yeah, yeah. thing. But I think even beyond that, it is a good, solid, entertaining film. And yeah, I, I think so. I think it stands up as one of those kind of uh,
0: cautionary tales about getting
1: involved with the music industry. <laughs> I I don't think it stands up so much as that, but as a <laughs> as a really like good entertaining film, I I would recommend it. Hmm. That's really lame. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I would recommend it. <laughs>